whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves. Coming to you from the banks of the peaking and momentous St. Rain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado, I'm Ben Kolb, and across the table is the only co-host who's convincing enough to turn a vampire into a vegan. She's Becky Peters. Becky, what's good? It's all good, Ben. I have the insane privilege of bringing the advice of giants in education to the earbuds of my favorite people, busy teachers, all to help us be more informed, inspired, and connected educators. And when we say giants in education, we mean it. On this episode, we have Dan Heath, who has co-authored a number of bestsellers with his brother Chip, including Made to Stick, Switch, and The Power of Moments. Dan is a senior fellow at Duke's University's Case Center, which supports social entrepreneurship, and he's been working in and around both education and business for a number of years. Yeah, and even just hearing his name kind of gives me like minor fanboy freakout moments because... Minor? Yeah, that's that's a nice way to put it, yeah. (laughs) I guess it is more than a minor freakout. I have loved the Heath brothers, Dan Heath, for a long, long time. I remember 11 years ago, I was a poor college student. I was student teaching in the frozen tundra of Illinois, and someone told me that I had to read his book, Made to Stick, and I had no money. So three weekends in a row, I braved the frigid temperatures, and I drove to a Barnes & Noble, and it's really the first nonfiction book that I ever binge read. And the awesome thing about that book is that it changed not only how I think, but how I taught, and then his most recent book, The Power of Moments, actually changed how I parent my own kids. So tons of build up there, but I know he follows through on all the build up. I can totally understand why you'd brave the fo- frozen tundra, even through Chicago. That's no joke uh, to a Barnes Noble every weekend to read one of their books. They're all bestsellers and they're massively engaging. They all follow a similar script too. They make an incredibly insightful observation about success in the world. And then they back up that insight with dozens of real world captivating stories that prove that they're smarter than all of us. But they don't leave you hanging with just stories and philosophy. They're really great at giving actions steps for how to put their insight into practice in your life. Dan tells some amazing stories in this episode, but hang tight after our interview for a few of Ben and my favorite stories that didn't come out in the interview. Yeah, 100%. They are definitely smarter than us, but they also are like the humblest guys and the nicest guys ever. So I know you will love it. Uh, Dan has spent the last several years studying the common elements behind those peak memorable moments that we all have. And in this episode, he tells us what those peak moments have in common, and how we can create more of those for our students in the classroom. So without further ado, here he is. What have you learned about moments that made you want to write this book? Well, you know, what's interesting is this, appropriately enough, this book on moments started with a moment between uh, Chip and me. It was um, several years ago now at Christmas time. You know, even though we write books together, we only end up seeing each other maybe once or twice a year. One of those guaranteed is at Christmas. And we all, of course, come to our parents' home. And this one year, we had um, kind of snuck out into my dad's office to to talk about a book we were working on then, which is not the moment's book. It was something else. And there was this kind of painful vibe in the air. It was, it was like one of these projects where you've put in a lot of work, but you're really not that into it. And, and you're a little bit reluctant to say that out loud because it's just too painful to contemplate having to flush like six months of work. And, and so we were just kind of working in the salt mines and trying to, trying to move forward on this idea. And I think in some desperate attempt to like procrastinate this work that we weren't that, that keen about the, the topic of defining moments came up and, and neither one of us can really remember what got us onto this tangent, but, uh, we kind of fell into this 
two hour long manic cycle of brainstorming. And we're just talking about, you know, political defining moments, like the moment when George Bush senior was in the grocery store and expressed surprise at a UPC scanner. And, and somehow that moment became like his defining character trait and, uh, sporting, uh, defining moments like that, the beautiful Olympic medal ceremony where, you know, you stand and you're given your medal and you hear your country's national anthem and the flag rises and it's just this amazing kind of powerful emotional moment and we talked about business defining moments and education defining moments and we talked about the research about defining moments and it was like two hours in we come bursting out of our dad's office and come into the living room where everybody's sitting and and we announce we have a new book and we knew it that quickly i mean we knew it as soon as we hit onto it that that the old book was dead and the new book would would live and and the funniest thing was our family, they they all had this look on their face of just uh, intense relief. Like they they had, all of them had hated the old book idea, but were just too kind to tell us. And so uh, so anyway, that's the story. That's the birthing story of defining moments. That's sweet. I like it. Um, I I appreciate so much, really, your entire body of work. And I kind of have spent the last couple of weeks just really digging in, in in hopes that we would be able to get an interview with you. Uh, so I have questions all over the place from Made to Stick and Switch and even your work at Kate, like all of the things you guys have done. So I'll try to keep it uh, reined in here. But I, I would love to get your perspective on how you've seen moments uh, in the classroom and how teachers have really harnessed some of your lessons from Power of Moments and put them into uh, what students' experiences are like in the classroom. You know, it's it's good timing for this. I'm not exactly sure when this podcast will go live, but um, we we have a, a newsletter. Chip and I are kind of social media cavemen. Like we're not on uh, Facebook. We're not on Twitter. We're not on I any of this that. stuff. But, but we do have an email newsletter which we cling to is our one, you know, thread of modernity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and last time I'm we subscribed put out- from two email addresses, just so you know. <laughs> Thank you. I just, get it, just I get it twice. Just for, yeah, for I, just for a backup, just in case exactly. one goes. Yep, you got it. So, so you know, then that in our last newsletter, we've kind of put out this call for stories from um, people who'd read the new book, The Power of Moments, and and wanted to share, you know, something that happened in their life because of it. And and we got this just incredible collection of of moments that um, that, that people shared with us, and many of them were from education. And l- let me just kind of scan through this list in real time, and maybe I'll share a couple of them. Oh, that'd be um, awesome! Yeah. So so one of them was about this guy who works at a community college. It's a commuter college. And, you know, because people aren't physically there, you know, they're not staying in dorms. They have a hard time creating a sense of, of culture. And and one of the themes in the book is what we remember from our experiences are these peak moments. And, and what does a peak moment look like? It, it looks like a time when our emotions are elevated. It, it looks like a time often that's a social moment when it creates connection among people. It gives us a chance to kind of show ourselves at our best. And so schools, uh, secondary schools are full of peak moments. But but see if you can notice the pattern in, in the examples I'm about to give. Prom is a peak moment. Uh, a basketball a championship game is a peak moment. A senior musical is a peak moment. Uh, science fair is a peak moment. Marching band performances are peak moments. What's the common theme? None of them happen in the classroom, Right. Uh, so we'll come back to that theme later. But but anyway, this this community college, this guy basically drums up 
what he calls a, a showcase for the students. And he, he lets the psychology people come and do, you know, Ted style talks and the literature people come and do like short readings and the drama people come and do performances. And, and all this is just totally made up. You know, there's no obligation to do this. It's opt in both the audience and the performers are all just there because they want to be there. But, but it's a way to create an opportunity to kind of show off yourself at your best. And, and my, my prediction is five years from now, after people have forgotten a lot of the details of college algebra and, and you know, American history, they're going to remember that showcase that that guy created for them. Um, another example was this, um, this person from a middle school in San Jose, they'd been inspired by this, this uh, video they'd seen online of seventh graders just talking about um, what does it feel like to be in seventh grade. And so inspired by that, they asked every one of their students to record a video. This is their third day of school up to 90 seconds in length. And they gave them a set of questions and they asked them to pick a couple of these questions. So I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, As a seventh grader, do you still think of yourself as a child? Uh, Do you gossip about other people? Do your friends gossip? What scares you? Um, What's the best and worst thing about middle school? And then they they compiled all these 90-second videos together and, and had basically a movie screening where they gave everybody popcorn and they brought them in the auditorium and they, and they just showed these videos, which is just, I mean, imagine that. The, these honest, real, funny, cheeky, um, you know, uh, open with fear kind of commentaries. And so it's like on the third day of school, you realize – you're not as weird as you think you are. Uh, you're not alone with the anxieties that you have. And, and none of this would have happened had this teacher not have taken the time to say, hey, we can really put a stamp on this experience right during the first week of school. How can we do that? Hmm. And so I mean, that's, a, that's wow. a very long answer, but I think it gives you a flavor of what we're chasing in this book, which is the fact that some moments are so much more powerful and memorable than others, and we have the ability to create those moments. I that 100% agree with that. So we know, like you just said, that peak moments feel good, they're memorable. But do they have impact beyond that? Like, why do moments matter? Well, this is a case we made actually in an, in an Ed Week piece uh, at the beginning of the year. And, and we're, we're challenging administrators and teachers to think in terms of creating more peak moments for students in the classroom. So, you know, back to the laundry list of, of you know, senior musical and science fair and whatnot. I mean, Extracurriculars are doing a great job creating moments that people are going to remember for five or ten years. Academics, not so much. And and so I, in a second, I'd like to be able to tell one of the stories we have in the book called "The Trial of Human Nature" as an example of a peak moment. But Please but do. before we even get into that, um, let me just kind of accelerate to the punchline. And I think there's a reasonable amount of research, especially research that comes out of this this domain called deeper learning, that suggests these these peak moments these are not just you know th- these are not just activities created for fun that that in fact they are reinforcing and maybe most importantly motivating the learning and that the schools that have experimented with them find you know stronger collaboration they find that students are more motivated in their learning they find that their academic performance is better in certain respects and and one of the most exciting things about the research to me is that these these upticks in these various metrics are not confined to just, you know, the best students or the high income students that have extra support. They're, they're across the board. 
you know, all kinds of students seem to be benefiting from this deeper form of learning that's more collaborative, more demonstrative. So, so to give you a feel for what an academic peak moment could look like, there's a school called Hillsdale High in San Mateo, California. It's a public high school. And there's a couple of teachers there, uh, Susan Bedford and Greg Jarellis, who have created a peak moment and then executed it for, I think this year is going to be, gosh, maybe the 25th or 27th year. Stop it. So let let me give you the backstory here. So uh, Jarellis is a history teacher. Bedford is an English teacher. And they had gotten to this point in their career as I suspect some some listeners may have arrived at at some point in their careers were just a little bit burned out. You know, they, they were just, they felt like they were stuck in a grind and uh, they weren't getting the same joy out of teaching as they had in their early days. And, and anyway, these, these discussions led to this insanely ambitious declaration that they promised each other they were going to create an academic moment that was as memorable as prom, which is about you know, as, as ballsy as you can get as a, as a high school teacher, you know, that, you know, prom's the night when teenagers rent stretch limos and then later in the night they vomit on each other. So this is a pretty high standard for, for memorability. (laughs) And so the way this thing works, um, one day when they're discussing Lord of the Flies in their literature class, which is of course the book where a bunch of boys are marooned on a desert Island and, you know, divorced from the civilizing, influences a society, they quickly revert to a a state of nature. And it's a pretty bleak portrait of what we're really like under the surface as human beings. Someone comes to the door, knocks, come in and distributes a a document that looks like a legal document. And the legal document is basically a summons to a trial. And the person on trial is William Golding, the author of Lord of the Flies. And he's being sued for slandering human nature. And the students are told they're going to conduct a trial, the trial of human nature, in which uh, they're going to serve as the lawyers, they're going to serve as the witnesses, one of them will serve as the judge, and their job will be to figure out, was Golding indeed slandering us? Did, did, did he misrepresent our true nature, or, or was he right? And the witnesses will be any figure from history or from literature. Remember, those were the two teachers that were involved, and the year I saw it, they had people ranging from uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger to uh, Florence Nightingale to Queen Elizabeth to um, Kanye. And uh, <laughs> these witnesses, you know, take one side or the other. They reveal something about what, what human nature is really like. And uh, a jury composed of administrators and alumni will deliberate and, and deliver a verdict. And it takes weeks and weeks to prepare for the trial. I mean, the lawyers have to learn how do you conduct a direct examination. The witnesses have to learn the life stories of, of the person they're going to represent. They, they come in costumes. So, you know, the Dalai Lama looks like the Dalai Lama and so forth. And then they have to, they have to do it. You know, they have to live in the moment. They have to be cross-examined. They have to make opening and closing statements. The judges have to rule on objections and and then nobody knows how this is going to end. It, it, like all trials, it depends on the whims of the jury. And this is such a powerful thing, right? That, um, that you're embedding some of the most important themes of history and literature in this one event. You know, what are we really like? What's our true character? And how does that show up in the form of things that happen in history or the way that protagonists behave in, in novels and, and in literature? 
And I just think it's extraordinary that this is the kind of thing that by and large is utterly missing from students' academic experience. And I think it's a mistake to yield all those peak moments uh, or to um, to allow basketball and, and drama and, um, you know, marching band to claim all the fun. And here's an example of where a couple of public high school teachers with no extra budget to do this pulled it off simply because they thought it was important. Wow. And I think of your mantra, beware the soul-sucking force of reasonableness, that you could you talk about how that mantra relates to the story you just told? Yes, absolutely. So in the book, you know, we're we're calling these these moments like the trial of human nature, we're calling them peak moments. And and the imagery there is deliberate. You know, these are moments that should stand above the rest, just like an important basketball game stands above the rest. And you're gonna forget all the practices that led up to that game, but by God, you're gonna remember that game, you know, when pressure was on. And and what we point out in the book is that in a lot of organizations, including schools, you know, our instinct in organizations is often to make things more efficient or easier to produce. And so in, in nine out of 10 schools, you take two teachers like Bedford and Jarellis and they come up with this brilliant idea. Hey, let's do a trial of human nature. And they, uh, what's going to happen next is it's going to be kind of slowly kneecapped right? The first thing that's going to go is, uh, one thing I didn't mention is that they actually conduct the trial of human nature in a real California superior courtroom. So all the students are bussed there. It, it's an amazing thing to like be just down the hall from where, you know, criminal trials are taking place. It adds so much to the experience, but, but you know, that would be the first thing to go is, is some administrator would say, well, you know, it's going to be hard to get buses at off peak times and, you know, we got to deal with liability matters in the courtroom. And they're, they're, by the way, there's no budget for renting courtrooms. So why don't we just do it in the cafeteria? Just make it an essay. Let's just make it an essay by the time. You yeah, know, right. it's way easier. Yeah. And, and, and why did students need to dress up in costume? I mean, you know, let's just get them a, let's just get them a hat that says, you know, I'm Dalai Lama and, you know, why bother with the robes and so forth. And, um, you know, it, do we really need to take time away from school? Like, let's just make sure the trial fits into a 50 minute period. And, and all these things that seem sort of reasonable on the surface, you know, that they are making things easier. They are making things more efficient. There's no argument there, but, but, uh, you know, back to the quote, beware the soul sucking force of reasonableness, you know, that, that peak moments are rarely reasonable, if you think about the peak moments from your life, probably none of them fit the description reasonable. You know, wedding days, there's nothing reasonable about a wedding day. You know, to spend $700 on a dress you'll never wear again and thousands of dollars on flowers and music that will only last a night. And, uh, and yet, in every part of the globe, even in the poorest places on earth, people spend or, or save rather for months or for years to make this a great day. So, so all I'm really saying is, is these instincts that we seem to have in different parts of life, like our instinct to make a wedding day great or a graduation day great, those same instincts should also apply to the lessons we teach in school. That's so beautiful. And I, there are a couple of things I loved about it and so many more questions I have. The, just the, the interdisciplinary nature of that example you give is so beautiful. I mean, you can see how not only history and language arts, but all other subjects fit into that. I mean, public speaking, research, theater, all of those things. Um, and I, I'm curious. I would love to hear you speak too about when you were giving that last example um, that it's it's 
easier to produce and we kind of tend to fall into efficiencies. And that seems like uh, your same idea about don't fix the potholes, but build better peaks. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that and how we're kind of tending to fix the potholes really in education and, and we should be building better peaks instead? Well, I, I'll give you an example from outside education, I think makes the point. And, and that is, um, it starts with a hotel actually in, in LA called uh, the Magic Castle Hotel. And if you've never stayed at the Magic Castle, it's not a very big place. Just kind of picture in your mind's eye what the Magic Castle might look like. And then let me reveal, it looks nothing like that picture in your head. It, what it looks like is uh, a two-story apartment complex built in the 1950s. It was later converted over to use as, as really more of a motel than a hotel. It was painted bright yellow. There's a, there's a pool in the courtyard that's about the size of like a suburban backyards pool. It's a very, very average looking place. The lobby, it looks like the lobby of like a, uh, an oil change place and, and the views aren't very good. And, and so why am I telling you about this very mediocre place? The reason is that, that this is considered the number two hotel in LA on the website TripAdvisor based on the strength of thousands of reviews. I mean, this place I'm talking about outranks the Ritz-Carlton. It outranks the Four Seasons. And you would you would have to really Google the images of this place to fully appreciate the absurdity of this, the idea that this place could trump the Ritz-Carlton. And the secret is that what the Magic Castle has figured out is just how powerful these small moments can be for guests. So, so to make that tangible, by the pool I talked about, this kind of this, you know, normal, boring looking pool, there's a cherry red phone mounted on the wall. And just above it is a sign that says Popsicle Hotline. And if you pick up the red phone, you hold it to your ear, somebody says Popsicle Hotline will be right out. <laughs> and somebody comes out minutes later wearing a suit, holding a silver tray loaded up with grape and cherry and orange popsicles. They bring them out to you poolside uh, wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. Mm. They have a a snack menu where you can get like Cracker Jacks and root beer and Sour Patch Kids and whatever your heart desires just by going up the front desk and asking. And they have board game menus where you can check out games to play with your families. They'll do your laundry if you drop it off in the morning. They'll have it washed and folded, returned to you by the end of the day. They have magicians doing tricks in the lobby a couple times a week. And so when I paint that picture, you can understand how a family might just straight up choose the Magic Castle over the Ritz-Carlton because it's more fun. You know, it's, it's more memorable. And, and back to your question, you know, our instinct in life is that we can improve things by fixing the problems with them. And so you imagine, imagine a hotel owner who just inherited this property, the Magic Castle Hotel, you know, picture the, the two-story apartment complex. But, but imagine that the that, that person who took it over had not yet in, put into place these the moments I was telling you about, the Popsicle Hotline and otherwise. Imagine that their philosophy had been, I'm going to take a survey of every guest who stays here, and by God, whatever they complain about, I'm going to fix it. So if, if their pillows were, were too firm, I'm going to get some soft pillows. And if their lamps were too bright and they didn't like it. I'm going to get some dimmer bulbs. And if they're checking too, too long and annoyed them, I'm going to hire more people to work the front desk. And if we ask ourselves, will that hotel get better over time? There's no question. You're fixing problems. It will get better. But if you ask, 
could that hotel have ever become the number two hotel in Los Angeles? The answer is obviously not. No chance, right? You can never problem solve your way to a really hap- happy, memorable experience. And, and that's the point about potholes is that we distract ourselves so much by fixing potholes that we never get around to building peaks. And I think if you think about your school through that lens, you'll know exactly what I'm, what I'm getting at, that we, we spend so much energy trying to make schools run, you know, trying to make the trains run on time, trying to make them, you know, more efficient. And, and meanwhile, we've lost the opportunity to construct from scratch the kinds of moments that, that if we had built them would have made people forgive a thousand other tiny problems. You know, think about the Magic Castle. Like, nobody is going to go home and bemoan the fact that their rooms were average, which they are. Nobody's going to go home and bemoan the fact that, well, the lobby wasn't as fancy as it could have been because they put points on the board. They, they gave you something to cherish. They gave you something to talk about. They gave you something to look back on. And when people give you those kind of moments, so much else becomes forgivable. The majority of life whelms us, you talk about. And so our purpose in education is to create those peak moments. And you boil down peak moments to four different elements, the elevation, insight, pride, and connection, that those are the memorable moments. And one of the stories that I love from a school standpoint is when you talk about the flamboyant brought about one of those memorable moments. Yes, absolutely. So this is... um this is such a powerful story. It's about the Stanton Elementary School in Washington, D.C. And as, as one observer said, Stanton was the worst elementary school in one of the worst districts in the country. So it had a chance to actually be the worst school in the U.S. And back in 2010, the school had performed so poorly that it was reconstituted. So its principal and administrative team were fired. They brought in fresh management. 28-year-old named Carly John Fishero became the new principal. And, and th- this is a long story. I'm going to tell a kind of abbreviated version because otherwise it would go on for, for 10 minutes. But um, she made a bunch of changes. She, um, she overhauled the school. She, she fired a bunch of the staff, brought in uh, fresh blood. They, they put pennants up on the walls. They, they worked to make the school more welcoming. They changed the curriculum. They changed the vision. They had this kind of you know rah-rah spirit among the staff. Students come back in the fall. They get into the semester, things actually get worse. Discipline problems are worse. They, uh, they experienced this problem that was, that was new to me that they called, what was the word that she used? Elopement. Elopement, which, uh, hmm. which I, which oh, I, I know what elopement is. Kids not, out of the classroom. Exactly, just walk it yeah, out. So you already yep. know. Yeah. Students just kind oh, of yeah. opting out of class, wandering into the halls, uh, it, it, the, uh, the principal Fishero told me that a lot of the classrooms in this school had swinging doors, like a Western saloon. So they would <laughs> kind of like wander out, roam the hallways, come back. Uh, Fishero about halfway through the year falls down the stairs and breaks her leg. And so it's just like this horror story, you know, like they've come into a really, really bad school. They've poured their hearts out. They've done everything they could. And they, it looks like they've actually made this place worse. And so they're heartbroken. And then in comes that, that, as you can imagine that situation, you're sort of desperate for ideas. You're desperate for direction. And they come to um, be aware of the work of this foundation called Flamboyant. 
And Flamboyant it makes a big deal out of parent investment in education. And so they invite Flamboyant to come and talk to their teachers. I think this is sometime in the spring. And the, the, what they're pitching flamboyant is the idea of home visit before the next semester. So picture it. They're in the spring of one semester and they're saying over the summer before fall semester next year, what you're going to do is you're going to go each one of you individually and visit the parents of your incoming students in their homes. And when you go, you know, some charter schools, they'll go out with a contract or, you know, you're, you're obligated to do X, Y, and Z. And in return, we're going to do A, B, and C. And it's a formal thing. And, and they said, you're not going to do any of that. You're not going to have people sign anything. You're not going to bring any literature. You're not going to show them a pamphlet. What you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to sit in their kitchen and you're going to sit on their couch and you're going to ask them four questions. And one is, tell me about your child's experiences in school and tell me about yours. Tell me your hopes and dreams for your child's future. What do you want your child to be someday? And what do I need to do to help your child learn more effectively? And I talked to this one teacher who was there for this presentation, a woman named um, Melissa, and she said, and uh, you'll have to bleep this if there's no profanity on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> she said, my first reaction was, I call bull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because think about this. Think of all the things they've changed. They've changed staffing. They've changed curriculum. They've overhauled the, the physical plant of the school. And then this, this one hour home visit is going to be like some magical recipe. I mean, come on. But they're desperate, so they agree they're going to try this. And the teachers go out that summer, and they start having these home visits. To their surprise, these are really well received. Like the parents are very positive about this to the point where when parents haven't received a home visit, they start bugging the teachers like, when am I going to get my home visit? And uh, the kids come back in the fall, and there's this early um, moment in the semester when uh, some kind of problem happened in the cafeteria, they had to get all the students to line up on the stairs. And, and Fishero, the, the young principal, said the year prior, like that would have been pandemonium. Like there would have just been just a total collapse of order from that. And this year, she said, there was basically silence and order. And, and her quote to me that, that stuck with me is she said, our school felt like a school instantaneously. I could not believe that it had worked so fast. And, and my favorite part of the story is they have, like many schools, they have a back to school night where the parents come in and kind of meet their kids' teachers and see the classrooms. And uh, at this school, apparently, uh, in, uh, attendance was pretty wretched, like only 25 parents had come the previous year. And, and so they were thinking this year, hey, maybe with these home visits, we'll go from 25 to 50 or something. So they were optimistic and they set up these extra seats and 15 minutes before the program starts, all 50 seats are full. So they put out another 100 seats. In 10 more minutes, all 100 extra seats filled up. Wow. Uh, the faculty got up from their chairs to make room for more parents. More than 200 parents came out to the school. And, and the teacher that had said, I call bull****, she said, we were looking at each other like we were in a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. And so, so, so what's the point of this? I mean... I'm suspicious, like I, I suspect many of your listeners are, of any kind of magic brews for, for education. I think education is hard and it's complicated and, and there is no magic bullet. But, but I think what's undeniable is, is that in this one place, and I suspect in other places like it, uh, th there was a moment that, that triggered a change. And the moment was as simple as going to parents who were suspicious about the value of education their kids were getting 
and treating them like human beings and saying, you know, tell me about your experience. Tell me about your kid's experience. Tell me what you want their experience to be like and tell me how I can help. And, and that hour in the course of an entire school year seemed to play a pivotal role in kind of rewiring the way those relationships worked. And, and I think that's a really powerful testimonial to the fact that relationships don't always progress in, in steady increments. You know, it, when you think about relationships, not every hour is the same, that, that some, some hours, some moments of connection are, are vastly more important and influential than others. And here was an example where they created a moment like that. Dan, wouldn't it have been way more reasonable if they just emailed every parent with a stock email? <laughs> exactly. They should have just sent out a PDF. It would have been the same. A, yep, That's right. A brochure yep. highlighting their new <laughs> parent program, uh, TM, exactly. uh, for TM. the year. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, I think that's what, you know, is kind of like a thread through this whole discussion is at the core of it, it seems to me. I mean, you keep using words like joy and happy, and it, it kind of puts the humanity back into our experiences, you know, those peak moments, those relationships. And another thing that I think gets in our way, and I'm going to steal from me to stick for this one, um, is the curse of knowledge. And I'd, I'd love to maybe a story about that and how that gets in our way of creating ideas that um, use the made to stick philosophy and, and how we kind of get in our own way with that in the classroom. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Made to Stick. So that was our first book. It's a book about how do you how do you communicate in a way that your ideas stick with people. And and I I think of Made to Stick as as being a sister book to The Power of Moments. And I think to me one is about communication, that's Made to Stick, and the other is about experience, that's The Power of Moments, but but I think they share a lot of commonalities. And in Made to Stick uh, which by the way, we wrote Made to Stick with with two people in mind. We we like to have like a vision in our heads of who's reading this book. And and one of the readers was an entrepreneur starting up a business. And the other reader was a high school science teacher. That's literally like when we were writing the book, we would ask each other, like, is the high school science teacher going to get anything out of this? So so we very much wrote it with with teachers and lessons in mind. And and we talk a lot about the traits that predispose ideas to succeed, traits like um, concreteness and unexpectedness and emotion. But we also talk about the villain of the story, you know, one of, one of the forces that, that combats our ability to make ideas stick. And it's called, as you said, the, the curse of knowledge. And this very simply is related to the fact that when we know something really well, it's very hard for us to imagine what it's like to lack that knowledge. So, you know, if you've ever asked for, for IT support with something that's gone wrong with your computer and, and they start asking you diagnostic questions that go quickly over your heads, like you, you've been on the other side of the curse of knowledge. Like it's, it's hard for them to imagine what it's like to have as little computer expertise as most of us have. And the same thing's true with doctors and lawyers, you know, the, the, the jargon they use, the, the sophistication of the logical models in their heads, you know, often lead to them speaking to us in these complex, abstract, jargony ways. And I think exactly the same thing is true with teachers. You know, when you've been teaching algebra for 20 years, I submit to you it's darn near impossible to, to create a mental model of what it's like to lack those, those, um, those terms, the, those links that are, that are so familiar to your brain. And so what I think great teachers do is – uh, and, and this is an example really that combines like the moments idea and the communication idea is, is they help students 
kind of scaffold their way into, into the concepts. Rather than just presenting terms, defining terms, it, it's almost like they derive terms. And let me give you an example to show what I mean. Uh, a friend of mine uh, just retired from this wonderful magnet school called the Loudoun Academy of Science outside of D.C. And one of his teachers was getting to that first lesson in calculus. And I still, I mean, I don't have that many memories from, from my academic experience. That's part of the problem, why I'm preaching peak moments. But I do remember a kind of anxiety-making moment in calculus when they first unveil that, that function notation, you know, the f of x, and the x is in parentheses. And you're like, what? Wait, what are the parentheses? And, and f of x like is that english like what does that mean and it's uh you start doing these calculations uh that that are somewhat mindless but 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 i don't i think i got through calculus and made an a never having understood what a function was like i could just do the the manipulations like a little robot so i met this teacher and when she's about to start functions she does this amazing thing where the students walk in there are these um Aquariums, aquaria, I guess, on their desks, um, filled not with fish, but with uh, crickets. And so they come in, and obviously there's a sense of mystery in the air around that, and the crickets are chirping. And uh, the teacher tells them, hey, there, there's a temperature gauge in every one of these uh, aquaria, and you, so you can make it a little bit hotter, a little bit cooler. And, and what we're going to do today is, is we're going we're gonna to explore something. We're going to see, do crickets chirp? faster or slower when it gets hotter or or does it stay the same and so they start by just measuring okay right now before we do anything how many chirps a minute are we getting from the crickets and they write that down and and then they turn it up you know three degrees and they measure again and then another three degrees and measure again and and they they end up with you know maybe seven data points or something and the teacher says okay you've just collected some data that links the rate of chirping to the temperature. And, and that's the role of something that we're going to call a function. And a function tells you if you input a certain kind of thing, in this case, if you input the temperature, the function is like a little machine that will spit out the rate of chirping. And how do we get a function? Well, in our modern world, all we do is we take a bunch of data like what you've just collected and we feed it into a software package and it will give us the equation. And, and why is that interesting? Well, the reason it's interesting is because then we could put in a temperature that you haven't tested, you know, maybe a degree and a half higher instead of three degrees higher. And the function will tell us what the rate of chirping should be, even though we haven't measured it. And that's why this, this function methodology is so powerful. And then at the end, she says, okay, she, she gives them a couple of, she actually gives them the function um, that they've just generated from this data. And she says, okay, plug in, you know, 82 degrees. And so they do the manipulations and come back with the answer. And she gives a couple of others. And then she says, okay, plug in a thousand degrees. And so they get out their calculators and they, they do the calculations. It's like a super high rate of chirping. And, and then she says, aha, now wait a second. I just want to remind you, like, even though we're going to be doing a lot of symbol manipulation, like let's remember to use our judgment because, Class, how fast do crickets chirp when it's a thousand degrees? <laughs> and the answer yeah. is there's zero yeah. chirps per minute at that yeah. point. Exactly. And and so I mean that to me is like God. Imagine if every class was like that. I mean, how profoundly different would our education be? I mean, built into that moment is 
is not just the mechanics of how to plug numbers into a function, but it also explains why in the heck you would ever want a function or what values do functions have. And it gives you the experience of having actually cooked the function yourself. Like you provided the data that allowed you to generate the function. And so, so, so to me, that's, that's like the holy grail of how education could look in, in a world where teachers were given enough time and enough freedom um, to really think carefully about what do I want students to remember from this five years later? Oof. Man, what a sticky, yeah. powerful moment that is. Like I will always remember that with functions, you know, and I didn't even experience it. So I couldn't imagine being a kid in that actual class. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's 2.15. Well, we want to honor your time. Yeah, we could literally talk to you all day. You are the best. Uh, last question will be, where can our listeners go to learn from and with you? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're a bit of a social media um, uh, idiots. Mm-hmm. So so your best bet would be to start with our website. That's heathbrothers.com. And I think the two two books that would be most interesting to teachers would probably be the two we've talked about, Made to Stick and The Power of Moments. Uh, if you just want to get a little taster before you commit to the purchase, the, the first chapters of both of those books are available on our website. So you could just pull those down and, and see what you think. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'll link all that stuff in show notes. And Okay, Ben, let's close up shop. What are your biggest takeaways from the Heath Brothers? So many takeaways from the Heath Brothers. The one that jumps out to me, beware the soul-sucking force of reasonableness. Forget about the potholes, build the peak moments. Uh, I have a friend named Brad. And about a year and a half ago, he invited me to join him and his wife with my wife and our three-year-old and one-year-old on top of Rocky Mountain National Park to watch the sunrise. They were leaving their house at 3 a.m. with a two-year-old baby. And I thought it was the most unreasonable thing I'd ever heard in my life. And so I laughed at him and said, no way, man. Because in my mind, I saw all the potholes that would accompany Getting up at 3 a.m. with my kids, I thought about how tired I would be and how I would need to go to bed the next night around supper time. And I thought about my kids and their meltdown. And then I read this book, The Power of Moments, and I realized in 10 years, would I remember the meltdown that my kids had? Would I remember how tired I was? Absolutely not. All I would remember is the peak and watching the sunrise with the people that I love. And just in life, We forget potholes when we have popsicle hotlines. And so I'm so excited to work with teachers and to work in my own life to brainstorm what are some different ways that I can have those cricket aquarium moments. So our challenge is let's not spend all of our time filling the potholes so that we have nothing left to build those peak moments. So those are my biggest takeaways um, really, we forgive a lot of average when we have some popsicles. How about you, Becky? That's awesome, Ben. I think like the unexpected part seems most difficult to me. Um, like you have to somehow interrupt the patterns that people are used to. Like he tells another uh, example of like Southwest Airlines and how they make their announcements fresher by saying things like, there may be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there's only one way to get off this plane. And when you're on the plane, you stop and you pay attention because even though you've heard that thing a million times, they interrupted that pattern for you. Um, the other thing that he talked about while we interviewed him, uh, and I think is really important for educators, is the curse of knowledge. The story that he tells in the book uh, is where you try to 
tap out a song, like say I've got the Star Spangled Banner in my head and I try to tap it out. And I think that you'll guess it just based on my taps because I'm playing that song in my head. But you as the guesser, I guess they only got them like 4% of the time or something like this, even though the the tappers think that you'll get it like 50% of the time. And it's because you can't imagine what it's like to not have that song in your head. So while you're tapping it out, you're like, oh, I'm doing this perfectly. This is exactly what the song sounds like and nobody gets it. And I think that happens to us in the classroom a lot. It's impossible for us to erase from our memory or to remember what it's like to not understand a concept or to remember what it's like not to know a math fact. Um, And I think that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind. Uh, And then the other thing, too, I'm a little obsessed with the power of moments uh, like you are. And as Dan mentioned, uh, how it intersects with those concepts in Made to Stick. So the Heath brothers assert that you make moments powerful when you infuse them with elevations, like elevating a person, with pride, insight, and or connection. And one example of an insight moment that I think is really cool for teachers, they call it tripping over the truth. Uh, which we're trying to get our students to do all the time. They tell a story about a business owner who's really proud of a generous 401k matching package that none of his employees are utilizing. So one day he brings a huge bag of money to a meeting, dumps the money on the table and says something to the effect of, after this meeting, I'm going to go put all of this money into my own account. Next year, we're going to do the same activity on the same day, and I hope that some of this money goes into your accounts instead of mine. And after that, all the employees go rush to sign up for the 401k. And the way the Heath brothers put it, like, if this business owner had done a presentation, like a PowerPoint outlining the benefits of the program, he may have had one or two people sign up. But in this way, how he gets them to trip over the truth, um, then they're all kind of rushing to do it. And I think as educators, especially when we consider our constructivist ideologies and our desire to help students discover that, like, red and blue make purple, for example, tripping over the truth seems like a holy grail for understanding. Uh, One activity I've seen that actually helps educators trip over the truth is something called Shadow a Student, which has been popularized by School Retool and Design Thinking and another uh, a number of other influential movements. But essentially, you follow a student around all day and see what life looks like from their perspective. And as administrators or educators, or even parents, that can help us trip over the truth of what their lives are like from day to day. Those are neat stories, Becky. Thank you so much. And to help us all trip over the truth more, the Heath Brothers have so much of their stuff online for free that you wonder how they make any money. But check that out. Those links are in show notes. A huge thank you to them and a huge thank you to you for listening. So go make some moments and have a great generic time of day. 